Hello and welcome back to Not Just Paleo. This is your host, Evan Brand. And I just got done with Paleo FX this weekend, and it was awesome. It was such a good time. It really was. I put up some pictures on my Facebook page. If you've never been over there, come check it out, and you can hang out on my page if you'd like to. I post a bunch of motivational quotes and inspiring information and research I come across in all of my journey here. But that's at facebook.com slash not just paleo. I put up some pictures of me on stage with my friends Nora Gagoutis and Ben Greenfield and Sarah I and a really cool dude that we call Jolly. That's his last name. He's a, a basically a biohacking nomad. So it was really fun to be on the panel of hacking stress. The whole room was basically packed to the gills. People were standing up. All the chairs were full. You know, I was a tiny bit nervous before I went up there, but not really, because if you know what you're talking about, your fear kind of goes away. So, I don't know. It was a great time. But anyway, if you haven't picked up a copy of the book yet, Rim Rehab, my sleep book and audio book, it's still available, and I put it up on my sidebar. So, if you end up going over to notjustpaleo.com, I know you think you know what you're talking about, and you think that you don't have a problem with sleep, and you sleep fine and all that, but... Even if you're sleeping eight hours a night, it doesn't matter because how do you know how good the quality of that is? You know, if you're if you're in bed for eight hours, rather, how many of those hours are you sleeping? And how deep is that sleep? Are you going through all of the cycles properly, et cetera, et cetera? So there's a lot of aspects of sleep that I had no clue about before I started to research for this book. And we go into supplement protocols and lifestyle factors and and all the different things that can impact it obviously you've listened to the podcast for a while you know what artificial light does to sleep but that is in the book in great detail also so that's on my sidebar back at the website this episode today is with paul jaminet the author of the perfect health diet and my buddy john brisson so i hope you enjoy this show as we talk about resistant starch a little bit we talk about vitamin c and the controversy of the supplementation of vitamin c Uh, we talk about some rice and what type of rice you should eat where should the rice be grown things like that and then also what gratitude can do for extending your life and then we finish off talking about social interactions and how the internet is sort of a replacement for social interactions but nothing is good Nothing as good as uh, seeing people in the real world, and I can certainly say that is true, spending a whole weekend with all these great people. I hug so many people, and one of my friends, Lisa, she told me, hey, when you hug people, hug heart to heart. So instead of just hugging and your heart basically going over someone's left shoulder, kind of scoot yourself over and put, when you're looking down at yourself, your where your heart is here on the left side touch that to their left side which is when you're looking at them it's their right you know what i'm saying touch heart to heart when you hug and feel the difference because there is a definite energy difference in that anyway let's get into the show thanks for listening i hope you have a great week and i'll be looking for your reviews on itunes if you get a chance all right and i'm here with two awesome people my friends John Brisson and Paul Jaminet, and we are back to discuss digestive health and a couple other topics 
that uh, both of these gentlemen have on their minds today. So first, hey, John and Paul, how you all doing? Doing good, Evan. How are you doing? Doing good. Paul, how about you, sir? Yeah, I'm doing great. Uh, surviving the winter. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's always good. I'm uh, actually almost out of the winter here in Austin. It's getting warm, so I'm actually really happy about that. But uh, so today... I want to get into digestive health. It's a very confusing and mysterious topic for people. And the, the mere fact that our, our bacteria and our guts, you know, pretty much controls our moods and, and a couple other things that you've mentioned before on the show, Paul, uh, I want to get back into today. So uh, quickly tell people if they haven't heard of you before or if they're not familiar with your work, just a little bit about yourself. All right. Well, I'm best known as the author of the book Perfect Health Diet and uh, with my wife and I we created this diet. Um, it was the outgrowth of our attempts to uh, heal our own health conditions and uh, we got sort of our breakthrough in 2005 when we started the paleo diet and noticed that it made big differences in our health and, and uh, that was the first thing we'd ever tried that did. Uh, but we ran into some health problems on paleo, and we spent about five years figuring out how to fix them. Uh, and in order to fix them, we had to go systematically, uh, you know, thinking through every issue of diet and, you know, what could go wrong? How do we optimize nutrition? And uh, so... Uh, that's what led us to call our diet the perfect health diet because we just tried to perfect every aspect of the diet, you know, including the amount of every nutrient that you get. And, uh, uh, and then we figured our diet would help a lot of other people besides ourselves, so we published a book. And it turned out it really did help a lot of people. So we've had thousands of people report improved health from our diet. And... Uh, uh, we've gradually expanded our advice, so it's a comprehensive set of lifestyle advice as well as diet and nutrition advice. And, uh, uh, and we're uh, building some other ways to help people uh, learn about it. We have a uh, retreat uh, business. People can uh, go stay in a luxury beach, beach location and learn how to live our diet and lifestyle. Um, and I'm also working on a set of video lecture courses to teach our diet and lifestyle advice and developing a continuing medical education course for doctors and uh, other things too. So, uh, so we hope to really spread the word and help a lot of people improve their health. Yeah, very nice. Now, Paul, what happened to you when you were on paleo? You know, I call my show not just paleo because I don't think that it's uh, prescriptive in the sense that it's going to work for everyone and that every aspect of it is perfect because it's definitely not. But what happened to you? Well, when I started paleo, I was sick and I didn't really have a diagnosis. You know, I, I mean, I knew a my doctor and I knew a lot of the symptoms, but we didn't know what was causing them. And it turned out uh, that I had at least two uh chronic infections and when I implemented paleo I went too low carb and that caused one of the infections to flare a, a fungal infection and uh, um, so that was one issue and then later on I developed a vitamin C deficiency and I had a variety of problems including 
including I just couldn't heal wounds. So I would get scratch wounds that lasted for months and, uh, and wouldn't heal. And, uh, and as soon as I started supplementing vitamin C, then they all healed. And, uh, you know, so those experiences, uh, you know, being, being too low carb and needing to add carbs back and then being too low in vitamin C and needing to supplement vitamin C, um, you know, persuaded me that it was pretty easy to be undernourished in something when you're following a restrictive diet like low carb paleo can be. And, um, so, uh, you know, so that led us to decide, well, if we could be deficient in two things, then, you know, we might be deficient in 30 things. So we better research every nutrient, figure out what the optimal amount to get is and figure out what I need to eat in order to get those things. And so that was really what led us to the perfect health diet. Yeah. So, I mean, were you just avoiding all fruits? I mean, I mean, what are the most dense sources of vitamin C? Um, well, vegetables, especially sweet peppers, um, are the best source, and then citrus fruits are next. I wasn't, I wasn't avoiding all fruit, but I wasn't eating a lot of fruit. I was eating a lot of vegetables, but they were all cooked vegetables, and cooking and heat can destroy vitamin C. So, uh, it, and but. The bigger issue was that I had various infections and, you know, sources of uh, oxidative stress like infections and immune activity can really deplete vitamin C very quickly. So, um, you know, there's a lot of interactions between your health status and your nutritional needs. Yeah, definitely. John um, or uh, Paul, something that I was reading the other day, it was talking about how vitamin C supplementation may not be a good thing to do uh, because it could be kind of falsely holding up or falsely supporting the adrenals. I mean, is there something to that? Well, vitamin C supplementation has been a controversial topic for a long time, especially since Linus Pauling, you know, since the days of Linus Pauling recommended, recommending megadosing. Um, it's, uh, you know, we we know now that uh, uh, oxidative stress is a is a signaling pathway in the body, and and so you need a balance between oxid oxidation and antioxidants. Um, and so there's been concern that uh, if you overdose on uh, vitamin C, uh, then it might impair some of those oxidative signaling pathways and it might inhibit the response to exercise or uh, other things. But um, I think actually uh, there's, still, there's still very little evidence of harm from uh, supplementing the doses of vitamin C that are tolerated orally. And uh, whereas there's, uh, you can do it, you can experience a great deal of harm if you're deficient in vitamin C. So um, I think the risk reward is pretty favorable. You know, so far the risks look to be pretty speculative and the rewards are pretty solid. So um, so and I personally support vitamin C supplementation in moderation. 
I do as well. I definitely agree with uh, Paul in that aspect because, you know, Paul was, like he's saying, when he had a deficiency, he was having uh, poor wound healing, which also could be because vitamin C is important for collagen production in the body as well. Um, and like, I, like, you know, like Paul had said, I've seen a few – a lot of people love antioxidants and I'm not saying that they're not very important for the body because they are. But like in cases for exercises, for example, there was a study that's shown that vitamin C – um, would hinder some of the recovery that athletes needed after working out because of limiting oxidative stress, like uh, Paul had mentioned. Um, so, you know, it, it's like too much inflammation is a bad thing, but you also do need an inflammatory, inflammation or inflammatory response does exist in the body um, for certain processes and everything like that. Like you wouldn't want to supplement too much super oxidized dimutase as a supplement and shut down most of your inflammatory responses in your system, which wouldn't be a good idea either. There has to be a, you know, perfect balance between the two. I mean, if you cut your arm, you know, you do want inflammation to develop to stop the blood flow and, you know, and everything like that. And eventually to promote healing as well, you wouldn't want to have no inflammation response and just bleed out. Um, so, you know, Paul is correct. I, I do believe that vitamin C definitely outweighs the benefitation of supplementing definitely outweighs any uh, risk of supplementation. Um, for most people, you know, as long as your kidneys are fine, your body will just excrete the excess uh, ascorbic acid um, from what you take in from it. Yeah, Paul, did you happen to uh, check out that vitamin C that I sent you in the mail a while back? Did you... Uh have a chance to look at the ingredients in that and see the the complex and stuff that was in it. Oh, I'm sorry. I've I, I don't I don't recall. That was a few months ago. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I was just curious cuz it's it was a um it's a complex form and you know, I I've read good and bad things about people just supplementing with just ascorbic acid by itself so are you definitely in favor of a complex vitamin though a vitamin c well um so some people do recommend the liposomal forms of uh vitamin c um i i mostly just supplement plain ascorbic acid uh one thing i don't recommend are forms with you know, like rose hips or bioflavonoids or lots of herbal uh, compounds mixed in. Um, you know, you can get too much of those pretty quickly. Uh, um, you know, but the ones that are bound to uh, uh, fatty acid type components are safe. Okay, cool. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about digestion because that's a, a really, uh, you know, big and, and great topic. Let's talk about what are some of the common things that people are doing to destroy their gut. I would probably say more than likely eating processed foods, um, which is one of the reasons why the perfect health diet is so important because you get off eating processed foods. Um, a common ingredient that can even be in organic foods um, is carrageenan which is a uh, polysaccharide seaweed. It's a brown type of seaweed. Um, most seaweeds are actually good for, um, you know, a lot of people ingest and stuff like that. But the problem with carrageenan is that there's tons of studies that show that it's extremely inflammatory to the gut um, and everything like that. And um, it's been actually brought a couple of times to the FDA regulatory activity of whether or not carrageenan should be removed from foods because of the massive studies that have been going along with its use. And uh, ever since then, they every time they went 
in front of the committees, you know, they still continue to use it in foods. And it is in a lot of packaged healthy foods, healthy in quotation work, and even organic foods too will throw it in. You know, you'll see carrageenan and maybe your natural toothpaste um, and everything like that. They use it a lot as a thickener. And, um, you know, going to more of a, you know, a paleo diet or even the perfect health diet would help limit a lot of, um, you know, additives like carrageenan that might be irritating the gut. Um, you know, that would be one of the best positives of going on a diet, you know, is because a lot of additives that are in, um, you know, food may or may not be directly affecting your gut, but it could also be directly affecting your health. Um, you know, preservatives like TBHQ, um, which is another nasty one that's usually used in oil to keep it from rancifying. Um, you know, they're, the less preservatives you can go and less fillers that you can usually go with your food, the better and healthy like off minute. it usually is for you. It's pretty much done. Yeah, I would, I would echo a lot of that. Definitely processed foods are problematic for a, a lot of reasons. Um, you know, both uh, fillers and compounds they have in them like carrageenan, uh, but also they use a lot of ingredients like omega-6 fats from soybean oil or canola oil or corn oil or safflower oil, uh, a lot of added sugar. Um, you know, those are, those are bad for the flora. A lot of uh, uh, seeds and nuts generally, but especially the grains and legumes, the, the grassland seeds and nuts, uh, tend to have a lot of toxins. And many of them are directed at suppressing digestion of the seeds. And, you know, so a lot of processed foods are made out of wheat, uh, corn, uh, things like that, that, uh, you know, or soy that uh, are are problematic. So uh, just giving giving up processed foods, going to a natural whole foods diet, going to relatively less toxic uh, foods and minimizing omega-6 fats, minimizing added sugar uh, can really lead to a big improvement in health. And it also tends to provide a lot more of uh, good forms of fiber that uh, nurture beneficial bacteria. Yeah, definitely. Now, Paul, do you think we figured out enough stuff to where we don't, uh, I don't want to say stop research or anything necessarily, but do you believe that we've found enough uh, evidence and research right now to give an, enough information if people will actually follow it to achieve perfect health or what you would call perfect health? Um, well, I wouldn't say that everyone is guaranteed perfect health because, uh, you know, we live in a world with a lot of microbes and, you know, people can get infections. You know, so, uh, you know, polio has not been eradicated and, uh, you know, there's lots of infections that, you know, can cause permanent harm and uh, uh, and other other problems and, you know, a lot of infections that we don't know how to cure. But you can definitely, everyone can improve their health and many people can achieve uh, perfect health. Uh, But I think... You know, like the name of our diet is really descriptive of a strategy. And uh, the strategy is you should aim for perfect health uh, because there are so many small factors that influence our health. Uh, 
and cumulatively, if you uh, if you mess up 15 things, each one of them may be a small thing by itself, but when you combine them, they can produce really serious health problems. And just to give an example, I saw a paper recently in mice where if you give them a vitamin E deficiency, they're normal. If you give them a selenium deficiency, they're normal. But if you give them both a vitamin E and a selenium deficiency together, then they die in 35 days. And, uh, you know, from uh, heart damage. And, you know, so biology is very complex. And, you know, the more harms you pile on yourself, they can they can conspire together to create serious problems. And most people, when they're sick, they really don't know what the causes of their sickness are, and neither does their doctor. And so in order to heal themselves, really the best bet is just to fix everything that you possibly can. And, you know, so the best strategy for healing is generally to... uh, try the perfect health diet or something very, you know, very close to it and uh, uh, fix what you can. And then uh, even if you don't fix everything, uh, probably your symptoms will clarify and you may be able to get more value out of your medical doctor. Yeah, definitely. Um, So once you nail diet and you think that you have diet all figured out, What's the next step that you like to focus on? I mean, do you talk about or focus much on, uh, you know, electricity, EMF pollution, and, and things like that, or do you like more lifestyle stuff? Or what's your what's your mindset? The first thing uh, when you get out of the diet box, what do you go to? Yeah, well, I would say lifestyle is just as important as diet. Um, we generally characterize. Uh, and the main factors in four categories, diet, nutrition, lifestyle, and exercise. And uh, so diet and nutrition, they're closely coupled, uh, but uh, you can address nutrition somewhat separately from diet through supplementation. And uh, so the difference there is kind of, uh, you know, diet, we're kind of macronutrient focused and focused on fiber and uh, you know, sort of major components of food, what, what foods do you eat, and then nutrition, looking at micronutrition. Um, and then lifestyle, the single biggest lifestyle factor is circadian rhythm entrainment, and that has uh, five major components. One of them, that the most important, is light exposure. Uh, you need to expose yourself to bright natural light during the day and avoid exposing yourself to bright blue light at night and um, so other aspects uh, intermittent fasting is extremely valuable because I've been actually telling women not to do intermittent fasting especially if they're really sick Um, oh I don't think that's good advice I think uh, intermittent fasting is actually very good for most women but uh, you do have to make the caveat they they have to avoid under eating so unfortunately, many women, when they uh, do intermittent fasting, they just eat too little food. And uh, uh, so they need to understand that, you know, when you do intermittent fasting, you're reducing the number of meals from th- three to two, but you're not reducing the amount of food that you eat. So you need to make your 
your meals 50% larger. And, uh, you know, a, a, lot of, a lot of women are, I, I'm not sure why men don't tend to make this mistake, but uh, men will rarely under eat, but women often do. We love food. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, John, I feel like you wanted to chime in. Go ahead, man. Um, yeah, I mean, intermittent fasting is, is great for most, for most people, you know, it can also help improve, you know, conditions, you know, type two diabetes and so forth and so on. The only time I'd ever caution against it, if someone has adrenal fatigue, um, sometimes intermittent fasting can cause a cortisol and adrenaline spike in the morning, um, that most people actually might need to eat some carbs, uh, during the first meal. But for most people, intermittent fasting can improve their life. Um, I also know, well, at least I've heard that if women do try to do intermittent fasting, Paul is correct. They do definitely need to make sure that they are eating more, um, than they normally would with the two other meals. Um, but if they are on a ketogenic diet, they may need to refeed, uh, sooner than most males do um, explain, based on their hormones. Refeed to people who've never heard that. Uh, refeed, usually when someone's on a ketogenic diet, they'll eat a specific amount of carbs, um, you know, whether a set amount where it's 50, where I think 50 is a little bit, depending on the person, can be too low. Um, I would never go as low as some people do, like zero to 25 grams of carbs a day. Um, but eventually, at some point, they'll have to refeed to fill their glycogen storage back up um, in their liver. And most people usually do that around, most men do that around the fifth to seventh day, um, which I would actually prefer most people do it three to five. Um, women specifically oh, yeah. should do it three to five. Um, but it just depends on the person. Um, and how well they're feeling in their state of health and everything like that. Um, but women's hormonal structures tend to rely on carbs somewhat more than men do. And the physiologically, phys- physiologically behind it isn't 100% yet. But most of the time when women, you know, I'll be on the forums and I'll see that they'll complain. You know, they'll be like, I feel horrible, you know. And, you know, most of them are either, like Paul said, they're not eating enough when they're doing intermittent fasting or they're not refeeding like they should. And I've seen actually quite a few people on the forums, too, as well, um, who do a ketogenic diet. They're so pumped up. They're like, yes, I want to change my diet and everything like that. And then they'll go and do it, but they'll do it incorrectly. And then within a month, I've actually known somebody who's got a month without a refeed. And they put themselves into adrenal fatigue by doing that. They were feeling horrible. Um, and that can't happen. Refeeding is very important if you're doing any type of ketogenic type diet. Sorry, I have a piece of chicken in my mouth. But <laughs> let me swallow this delicious this delicious piece of chicken first. Hold on. How rude of me, right? All right. <laughs> so my question is about rice. Uh, Paul... Now, you put rice, and I'm eating white rice actually right now, and it is great. Now, how much nutrition is actually in rice? I mean, are we mostly eating rice just for the carbs, or are we eating rice for actual vitamin and nutrient mineral content? I mean, how much, you know, stuff is really packed into these into these little pieces of rice here? Yeah, well, there's there's not much nutrition in white rice, that's, <laughs> that's for sure, so... Uh, you're pretty much eating it for uh, the for the starch for the glucose, um, and it can have a little bit of fiber. It depends on the 
variety of rice that you get and how it was prepared and whether you cooled it in the in the refrigerator um, but uh, that it's still a healthful food because uh, 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 glucose is a nutrient and so you need a certain amount of that in your diet and it's good to get a certain amount of uh, what's called resistant starch fiber in your diet and the natural way to get resistant starch is by eating starchy starchy foods yeah I had to add white rice back into my diet because I was so tired during the day after eliminating it you know I was just going to uh, just basically bunch of spinach and kale and just you know kind of shoving handfuls of vegetables down along with my my meats and I was just seeing how I would feel without without rice for a little while and I started to get exhausted I mean I'm a pretty physical guy but uh, as soon as I added some white rice back in and not much it doesn't take much uh, we could talk about your all's personal recommendations if you feel like but um, I mean even just a, a fourth or at the most like a half cup has done wonders for me yeah, yeah. It, made, it made me feel good as well too, Evan. When I when I would eat it, um, the type of rice that Paul was talking about, you know, there's many different types. There's basmati or you know jasmine. Um, you know, there's you know there's more than that too as well. There's red rice and you know wild rice, which is actually a grass. It's not really a rice. Um, but um, you know, I it depends on someone's digestion concerns. Um, sometimes the resistant starch can feed people who have SIBO, um, can make their symptoms worse and other people it doesn't. It's a great medical mystery. Um, you know, usually if someone has SIBO, you would try them on Jasmine, but not everybody reacts normally. So Jasmine might actually cause more, um, issues than, you know, Basmati would. Um, I'd recommend, most people try to get a cleanest source of rice as they possibly can. Um, a lot of the rices now are coming up with a lot of arsenic inside of the rice. Um, myself, I try to usually go with a jasmine from Texas, organic if possible. Um, you know, you can get it kind of cheap. Um, rice from Thailand's also been seen to be actually the, the jasmine rice in Thailand seems to be pretty clean as well if you can't afford organic um, for most people. But um, I'd be curious to see what Paul's recommendations on it would be. Yeah, well, um, you generally want to avoid rice from the U.S. South because uh, they used arsenic there as a pesticide in the 1800s. Uh, to fight the boll weevil when they were growing cotton and uh, you know so the uh, rice grown in the former cotton growing regions tends to have a lot of arsenic and you also want to avoid rice grown in China which has a big pollution problem uh, but generally rice grown in California or Japan uh, are very are very safe uh, now maybe that's no longer true with <laughs> yeah. Fukushima. Yes, <laughs> uh, but um, you know they recently tested some rice from California and found it was very low in arsenic. Um, you know, but uh, keep in mind that all, all plants uh, collect arsenic. You know, rice concentrates it a little bit more than some others, but. Uh, the other aspect of arsenic is that in very low doses, it's not, it, it's not that harmful. In fact, uh, in low doses, it actually extends lifespan of mice. And, you know, so I would get, I would get rice from uh, good suppliers and good areas, not from China, not from the South. But 
you know, it should be possible to get good Asian or California uh, rice, uh, and I wouldn't worry about the arsenic. Isn't that insane, Paul, what you just mentioned? I mean, just a small amount of arsenic may help or extend the life of rats. I mean, this whole picture of health is so insanely complicated sometimes that it's almost better just to just, you know, follow something, stick to your diet, get your greens, steam them, get your small amount of rice, get your good quality fats in, and then try to focus on stress reduction because I feel, you know, even as as part of this show... I feel how people get so overwhelmed with all of the studies. You know, you can pick any study you want to to show anything you want. You know, I could probably find something that says, like, you know, eating Twinkies is good for you and can, you know, help improve physical endurance or something crazy. But and, – and that's that's where it gets weird because studies are just – actually, I saw a uh, – a little picture on on the internet the other day that's that was like making fun of paleo and it said picks pubmed studies that go in their favor or something like that and it is funny because a lot of us we do look for things that go in our favor but all that being said i want to talk about stress a little bit and paul you being an entrepreneur and an author yourself and uh, me almost being an author and john almost being an author also uh it's a different way of life than a lot of people are used to living. And so I was curious to know if you have any sort of, uh, you know, personal routines or anything that you've discovered along the way, uh, you know, going from your, your previous background now into being an entrepreneur. Um, well, I guess I, I guess I try to live our advice. I don't always do it faithfully. Um, especially in the winter, it's, it's hard to get enough sunshine and exercise. Um, but, uh, you know, it is pretty important to set up a routine and to try to live a rhythmic lifestyle and to get enough sunshine and exercise during the day, uh, to have a rhythmic eating schedule. Uh, it's important to get social interactions in the day. You know, if you're an author and you're working at home, uh, and you're isolated, then it's very easy not to get uh, the social interactions that you really need for optimal health in, in the daytime. Um, and stress, it's actually, it's actually good to get a certain amount of stress, but it should be in the daytime, and then you need to be able to relax every night. Um, so you, it, it's, it's good, I think, to have a good transition from your daytime world to your nighttime world. And, uh, you know, like St. Paul said, don't let the sun go down on your anger, you know, you need to give up, you know, let go of anything stressful or anger causing and have good emotions at night. Um, so, you know, I would say that, you know, that rhythmic lifestyle is very important and it's very important to limit the hours in which you stress yourself. So we all have work to do and we all have some stress, but we just can't let it overwhelm us. Yeah, that's definitely easier said than done. And uh, have you used anything specifically like minerals, magnesium, or anything to, to use it as like a calming aid, Paul? Um, no, I've, I've never really needed a calming aid. But definitely if you're malnourished, then that can that is stressful and it does make you irritable and, uh, 
and cause other problems. So I would say, you know, things people should look at. Uh, magnesium deficiency is definitely a problem. And if you fix that, then your mood will improve. Um, things like the phospholipid components, like choline and inositol, um, are pretty good. It's good to eat liver and egg yolks uh, to get uh, key nutrients. Uh, it's um, so a, a few other things that might help are uh, th things that uh, support good gut health and a good gut microbiome. And near the top of the list is circadian rhythm entrainment, intermittent fasting, daily exercise, um, and uh, things that supply vitamin A, vitamin D, sun exposure on bare skin, and liver uh, for vitamin A, um, spinach for vitamin A, vitamin K, um, and then vitamin C and collagen sources. So the best source of collagen is to use bones and joint material in making uh, stock and soups and stews. Um, so, uh, and then another good thing to do is to ferment vegetables at home and eat fermented vegetables regularly. Uh, so there's a lot of things you can do to uh, support good mood. Um, but I really, you know, have been in a pretty good mood for about uh, five years now, so uh, I haven't needed any interventions. That's a long, that's a long record. <laughs> I'd be pretty proud of that, Paul. Yeah, I would too as well. Yeah, so, um, you know, I was just curious because people are always wanting to know how to conquer stress. I mean, I don't know about all three of us, but I know certainly with myself, I have so many different things that I'm doing at the same time. And so it's really hard to try not to spread myself too thin. And when that happens, of course, you just, you know, your brain gets tired. And so, you know, people are always feeling the the pull, you know, in so many directions. And so I'm always looking for ways to just simplify my life. I try to just keep it minimal. I wrote about the importance of minimalism and, you know, trying to have less materialistic goods. That's certainly one thing that's helped me. But, uh, John, what about you? You got any take on uh, simplification or uh, mental stress in your head? Well, I agree with, you know, everything Paul said. And, you know, there is one component is, is the media likes to hound us on stress, 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 and stress. And, yes, Americans are more overstressed, you know, some Americans are now, I guess, at any point in given life because our hectic daily schedules and technology and getting to work in massive traffic amounts and so on and so forth. But like Paul did mention earlier, stress does have somewhat positive aspects to it as well. It just depends on the amount. Um, stress can, you know, stressors themselves can be positive. We can use them as motivation or motivators and everything like that. Um, you know, I mean, stress does exist for a reason. You know, the fight or flight response as well as human being, you know, exists. It's just the amount that we face on a daily basis. You know, you most people when they try to, I would say most people when they try to unwind at night, and Paul is very correct about the circadian rhythm aspect of it. You know, most people complain that they can't sleep because the only time period throughout the day that they get to reflect on anything 
is right before they get to bed because, you know, most people, some people leave the TV on at night, but, you know, some people don't. And they're just laying in bed tossing and turning because they never unwind at any part during the day at all. So they're constantly worrying, you know, how am I going to pay my bills? How am I going to do this? How am I going to do that? And everything like that. And, you know, that's why, you know, like Paul mentioned, it might be a good idea, you know, if you possibly can in the morning, you know, if the sun is out before you go to work, you know, sit outside for five minutes, you know, five to 10 minutes, you know, reflect, you know, reflect, you know, try to think positively when you first wake up in the morning, you know, that could also help start your day out, help relieve stress. I mean, it's hard, you know, I I can't do it every day. And, you know, there's been a few days where I've gone without doing it, but it does help prepare yourself. We're all going to have problems, you know, even the richest person in the world occasionally gets a flat tire, you know, everybody has issues that come up. But, you know, it's important of how we handle the stress, how we look at it. You know, the happiest people in the world, you know, they don't – if you let stress defeat you or conquer you like you would mentioned, Evan, you know, then, you know, if you know, if you're constantly brooding and constantly worrying and you're constantly holding grudges and stuff like that, your health is going to suffer. Um, you know, you have to work on yourself. You have to reflect. You have to let things go. You know, you have to, you know, realize at the end of the day that, you know, you know at least you're alive in this world and – you know, and things might not be as bad for you as they might be for someone else. You know, you have to be able to take a break every so often. And a lot of people don't do that in this hectic society that we live in. Yeah, definitely. You know, something that's coming to mind to me is spirituality. And, you know, I've certainly experienced some sort of magical power, whether it's God or nature itself or God is nature or, or something. But, I mean, I've definitely had some pretty spiritual experiences myself in the woods. And I think that a lack of that is what's kind of creating and, and helping along people's insanity. So, uh, Paul, do you have any input on that? Well, you know, they found that uh, uh, people who pray li- live longer. Mm-hmm. And re- religious people live longer, so uh, uh, you know I think there's there's good reason to think there's something to that. Um, but even among uh, people who are religious, there are differences. So there was a famous study uh, of uh, nuns where they looked at uh, essays the nuns had written in like 1918 as as young women and they tracked their longevity. And the nuns who were uh, optimistic, happy, grateful when they were young uh, had the longest lifespans. And so things like gratitude and uh, you know, be, being grateful, looking on the bright side of things, uh, there may be real benefits uh, to that. And we also see in, in studies that there are uh, actual changes to the brain when people pray regularly or they meditate, um, and those appear to be beneficial. So, uh, you know, there's, there's lots of reasons to think that, uh, you know, a few simple practices uh, may be able to help us really improve the quality of our uh, minds and uh extend our lifespan yeah definitely i was gonna say 
I wonder if or how we can quantify that, but I'm glad you you brought that point up because that's kind of a gray area. You know, not too many people in the, the health community or paleo community are talking too much about the spiritual aspect. We're all like science nerds and science geeks who just want to talk about this study said this, this study said that, and it's all about numbers and results and supplements and herbs and foods and stressors and uh, charts and graphs and blood tests and all that, you know, I don't know. I guess you would just call it more uh, the non-creative part of the brain, you know, just the more logical, numerical part. But I think there's definitely the whole other half of the brain that wants to be engaged in, say, drawing or playing drums or, uh, you know, gathering and, and doing a drum circle or something like that. I've actually been trying to look more into that and talk more about that because I feel like it's like the white elephant in the room. We talk so much about the scientific, biological aspect of health, but we ignore that we're, you know, human beings that have connected with each other for a reason. We have emotions for a reason, and I feel like that gets left out a lot. But uh, I don't know. Either of you guys can uh, can take away there because I feel like you all have something to say about it. I mean, I agree with you, Evan. I mean, a lot of people nowadays were taught to hold our emotions in and. You know, we're you know we're 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 taught not to, you know, to laugh or to cry or whatever, and both of those are you know physiological functions that um, cry. It's more than just tears coming out of your, you know, your your, your eyes. You know, it's it, it also lowers cortisol. It, you know, really stress hormones through the tears and everything like that. And it's the same with laughter. You know, studies have shown that you know more people who are optimistic, the more people who laugh. You know, they 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 tend to live longer. You know, Paul's correct about that. You know, it might increase certain neurotransmitters, you know, when you laugh like dopamine and, you know, give you, you know, good sense of overall well-being. I'd actually go as far as to say is it might actually lower blood pressure by laughing as well, um, you know, and stuff like that. So, you know, you're right. A lot of people don't talk about what it is to be a human being. You know, we're all obsessed with the numbers and the studies and stuff and, you know, you know, not with the personal aspect and everything like that. It's always important you know, to treat people on a human level, you know, we're all different, you know, we all go through, you know, different struggles and everything like that, you know, and it's important for us to try to relate to one another so that we can understand each other. And, um, you know, and, you know, having some sort of, you know, religion or, you know, meditation or reflection of some sort is, is very beneficial in, in one's life, you know, and I definitely, you know, agree with both of you guys on that. You know, it's important for us to take a step back in the hectic life that we live and, you know, try to reflect on, you know, ourselves and on others too as well. And that just doesn't seem like it's happening as much nowadays anymore. You know, technology is a good thing, but it seems to be taking us away from that you know most people don't have conversations anymore if they're sitting in the same room you know they'll text to each other you know look down at their cell phones and everything like that and of course we could talk about you know emf radiation and all that other nonsense that would come with it too but it's also the social aspect as well you know you know how many times you go to a restaurant and you see two people sitting there and they're both on their phone talking to each other through their phone and not physically talking to one another you know that has to have some negative aspect in one's life you know, you know, we were giving a voice, you know, to speak for a reason, you know, and more and more you'll see instances of stuff like that happen. I'm not saying I'm against technology. I just think that it is robbing some personal communication in a lot of people in different aspects. Yeah. And that 
raises an important point, which is that social interactions are really very important for health. And, uh, um, and it seems that looking at human faces and hearing human voices are an important aspect of, of that. So uh, you're right, the social interactions we do on Facebook and computers and tablets and smartphones may not be a, a fully healthy substitute. Um, you know, but it, it's interesting when you look into the research on some of these substitutes for social engagement. Uh, so, for instance, it turns out that dogs are a pretty good su substitute for human relationships. You know, so people who have dogs have, have better health and, and their health is nearly as good as people who have good social interactions, like a good marriage. Um, but people who have cats don't seem to get much benefit from uh, interacting with their cats. <laughs> so. uh, that's funny. I wonder why. I wonder maybe because people, well, you know, all the cat people are going to say that's not true, but maybe because uh, people talk more to their dogs or something and you can interact with them more than cats. Cats are more like roommates, you know. Dogs are more like friends. Yeah, I think that's true. It's, uh, yeah, I do as well. Even though I'm a cat person, I do agree. <laughs> hey, hey, I, I love, I love a, uh, I love a, a kitty though. I went and got the mail earlier, and I saw this big old black cat walking outside. I love cats too. I mean, they're so cool. I don't know if you guys have ever really looked into the uh, the whole archaeo. I can't even say that word. You know what I'm trying to say? Archaeological uh, record of cats. But I mean. The cats that we have now and their descendants, it is so cool to see what they came from and where they came from. I mean, have y'all looked into that? Because that's really cool. Yeah, I've, I've looked into stuff like that. And also, to reiterate on dogs, a recent study came out that scientists are now actually figuring out that dogs actually do communicate with their barks as far as showing like different, you know, inflection and their different types of barks and everything like that. And, you know, that they might show different emotions depending on their barks and, um, you know, stuff like that. And, you know, it could also be like you'd said earlier about how, you know, much as I love cats, you don't talk to them or pet them the same way you do a dog. I guess dogs, as far as domesticated animals are probably, you know, the closest interaction between humans as far as if we go back, you know, back through the years and everything like that you know so. you know what i'm thinking right now after you said that i feel like 80 percent of studies could be i don't know they, they could be common sense i feel like <laughs> 80 to 98 percent of studies sound like common sense oh eating green vegetables may improve your health you know playing with an animal who's happy all the time uh, may improve your health. Um, Paul, do you want to speak on that? Yeah, it's, um, you know, some people have said that, you know, the result of uh, 50 years of study of diet and nutrition is that, you know, you should eat like your great-grandmother advised you to eat. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of old lore and you know, old things that everybody knew and thought were common sense that, uh, you know, we're now, we're now validating. Uh, but in many cases, we had to take a wrong turn first and, you know, abandon all the good old advice before we figured it out. That yeah, it, yeah. It coconut, really oil, coconut oil is one good example because Lord knows the, the soy industry and the canola industry tried to demonize coconut oil as being one of the worst things on the planet. 
and uh, you know studies are coming back and you know validating you know that of course we need, should have known it for years that coconut oil is way healthy alternative than they could ever be um, but it's curious if you still go to because um, I remember taking nutrition class in college and everything and of course there was a lot of stuff that just makes me shake my head in there but you know, a lot of the people still reference, if you go look up coconut oil, they'll say, well, the saturated fat in coconut oil is horrible for you and stuff like that. And, you know, you might want to limit, you know, co- eating coconut oil. And still even today with the amount of studies that are out, you know, there's a lot of inconsistencies in studies. I mean, I love to I love to quote them. Everybody does. But, you know, there was like a, a recent study that I saw people were touting on the forums that selenium and vitamin E supplementation increased prostate cancer. But the problem with the study was is they were using petrosynthetic vitamin E, um, which was, you know, vitamin E uh, DL. And they were using one of the worst forms of selenium too, which, by the way, most people get enough selenium in their diets unless they have low thyroid and specifically need um, to supplement with it. You know, I would never supplement more than 200 micrograms on it, you know, on a daily basis. I'd, hell, I'd actually much recommend it people stay they have to at least 100 micrograms um but um yeah there with studies you know you always have to check who funded it what the you know who are behind the study the research team and everything and always if it's always a vitamin study please check to see what source of vitamins that they use if all possible because most of the negative vitamin e studies that are out there they use petroleum-based dl vitamin e most of the positive vitamin e studies out there they either use a blend of the mixed tofurols which are the best if you're going to supplement or they use natural vitamin a i mean <laughs> vitamin e i'm sorry is what they use so always make sure you check the source that they use as far as the minerals or vitamins or any supplement that they've used yeah paul i wanted to talk about uh heavy metal toxicity a little bit because yes i think that uh the whole paleo ancestral all of this stuff we're talking about with food is great except we live in 2014 not uh you know, the year 1214 or any time before all of these new uh, things were were added to the environment. Obviously, heavy metals and things are in the Earth's crust itself, and we have some sort of levels of these on the planet. Everything comes from the planet, of course, but uh, I wanted to know how much experience or, or trouble you see with heavy metal toxicity in people. Um, I... I don't think it's too much of a concern except perhaps in uh, pregnant women because developing embryos can be very sensitive. And, uh, uh, and again, it's mostly a concern, as people know, with uh, seafood that's high on the food chain. So they, you know, every time a fish eats another fish, they concentrate the metals because they're not excreted easily. And uh, uh, so the more... The more fish are eating fish are eating fish are eating fish, then uh, you know the higher the uh, the metal dose can be. Um, you know, but for the most part, uh, you know metals are an environmental toxin, and there may be some specific places that have high uh, lead levels. Like if you know chickens were in a coop that had lead-based paint, uh, you know, then maybe those chickens would be would be high in lead, uh, but you know, if you, it, it's it's always you know if you can afford it, a 
a good thing to do is form relationships with local farmers and, you know, know where your food is coming from. And, you know, I think, I think there's some real value in supporting uh, health-conscious food producers. And, you know, so if, if people are actually willing to spend a little money to support local farmers, then, uh, uh, you know, keeping them in business, then uh, it makes us all better off. And, uh, uh, but, you know, even if you, even if you can't afford to do that, it's, uh, um, I, I don't think you need to be overly concerned about, about heavy metals in the food supply. Okay. Yeah. I mean, cause you know, my friend Wendy, she has been, uh, talking about, you know, heavy metal toxicity and, and detoxing with, uh, the use of infrared saunas and not the, the super heavy metal detox that people talk about with chelators and all of that stuff. I've heard some, some bad and dangerous things about detoxing metals that way. But, uh, do you have any experience with, uh, the hair mineral analysis testing that, uh, Dr. Lawrence Wilson, uh, tells people and what he, uh, I guess uses in his practice? Yeah, well, that's, uh, I mean, those are, those can be useful tests. It's, uh, you know, so there are a variety of uh, metals that are primarily excreted through uh, sweat, hair, nails. Um, And, uh, you know, so they're excreted from the skin. And, uh, you know, so you can, so when you have an excess, the excess will show up in your hair and they can do hair tests in order to detect that you have an excess. Um, you know, so like if you overdose on selenium, you'll get kind of a fishy smell because of the selenium in your sweat. And it's actually good to sweat regularly. You know, so going into saunas is good for your health. Uh, that's partly because the sweating promotes excretion of toxins. And it's partly because uh, the high temperatures can kill some microbes, you know, as and help you know, reduce the burden of infections. Uh, you know, so that's why fevers are curative for, for some infections. And, you know, so uh, going into the sauna is a, is a good health practice. Um, but, uh, um, you know, I think if you uh, engage in good health practices, you get daily exercise. Um, you're well hydrated, you get a good intake of all the micronutrients, so you have uh, good uh, electrolyte status, for instance, you know, then you should sweat fairly easily, and uh, it should be fairly easy to excrete uh, any excess you get of uh, those particular metals. So, uh, the, you know, the metals that tend to show up in hair tend not to be the most dangerous ones, you know, because those are ones that your body can excrete. Yeah, see, I've heard about copper toxicity being a pretty big deal and that if you were to have a low copper toxicity on your hair test result, that that may be that you're holding on to, that you're actually holding on to copper because it's not shown in the test. And I guess that copper toxicity is uh, more common than most people would think. So you think there is something to to uh, to give credit? I guess you would say that hair testing could be another piece to the puzzle in trying to achieve overall health. 
Yeah, well, I think a lot of people eat very unbalanced diets. And if you, if, if, even though hair tests don't, don't measure everything, uh, you know, they do give you some clues if your diet is unbalanced. And if you fix, uh, you know, if you're deficient in some things, you have an excess of others and you fix those, you'll probably be balancing your whole diet, you know, even some other nutrients as well. So I think the test, you know, the test can be useful. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, for a lot of nutrients, we just don't have good tests of the body's nutritional status. Yeah, that's what, I, I was, that's what I was trying to figure out, like how much stuff is actually being excreted through the hair. I mean, is the hair a valid place to search for things that the body's getting rid of? Like, are you, is there, um, I mean, can you say, yes, specifically, you know, say magnesium, you could really actually detect the levels, you know, uh, accurately through hair and stuff like that? Because there's a, I just got my hair test back and there was a ton of stuff that I never imagined uh, mostly heavy metals, but other stuff that I wouldn't have imagined being able to be tested from here. Yeah, well, you know, we have a lot of very sensitive technologies, so, you know, they can, you know, they, they can find everything yeah. in, in, in your hair. So it's, it's more a question of how do, how do the levels compare to what's normal and, you know, what's, what's safe. Um, you know, you, you do have three main excretion pathways. One is through the liver and the bile and the feces, and the other is through the kidneys and the bladder and the urine, and then the third is through the skin, you know, which can come out as uh, uh, in the sweat or the hair or the nails, um, you know, or you can also exhale uh, some things, uh, you know, it can come out through the lungs and, the, and your breath. So there's various ways of getting rid of different things. Um, and it's actually, you know, it's a, you know, at some point, I, I think there actually needs to be more research done on how can we assess nutritional status. And, uh, you know, it would be much better if doctors would devote more effort in, in order to helping people be well-nourished, eat a healthy diet, live a healthy lifestyle than some of the things that they that they focus on now yeah definitely uh we're almost out of time but i wanted to to figure out where you see things going or where you want things to go um paul you could you could start first and then uh john you can too but i'm just curious to know where you guys want this thing to go or uh of course you want it to go in the direction we've already discussed but um realistically what should we be looking for in the future as uh, time progresses and uh, life seems to keep speeding up well I guess uh, I, I guess my personal focus at the moment is is trying to uh, figure out how to prove how to measure uh, the the health benefits of an ancestral diet and lifestyle and and how to how to prove that they really are beneficial and how to integrate uh, diet and lifestyle advice into uh, people's lifestyles and into healing methodologies, integrate it with medicine so that we can heal people more effectively. And so a lot of the things I'm doing, like uh, 
you know, like creating our retreats, you know, part of the goal is to is to be able to uh, assess in a in a pretty clean way uh, the health benefits of uh, uh, adopting and implementing uh, the PhD lifestyle. Yeah, Paul. Um I asked Mark Sisson the same thing. I'm curious to know if your answer is the same about doing the retreats. Do you think the retreats are more fun and you're doing that just to uh, kind of uh, please, I guess, our physical needs, you know, to where we can actually be face-to-face with people rather than just writing a blog post or a book? Or what made you want to do this, uh, the physical world retreat type of thing? Because that's really kind of sparking my interest into doing something similar, some kind of nature retreat or something. Yeah, well, our retreats are a little different than Mark Sisson's, so his are more like, you know, kind of a a short vacation. You go and have fun, you hang out with Mark Sisson, and you play. Um, Ours are much more, uh, uh, you know, they're vacation-oriented, they're in a luxury setting on the beach. Uh, We have great food, um, you know, but uh, we supply the food, but we're also... You know, we're trying to teach you how to uh, live an optimized uh, diet and lifestyle. And, uh, and then we also try and follow people afterwards. So our, our retreats tend to be longer. Uh, currently, we're doing two weeks. And that's long enough to see significant health improvements in a lot of people who come. Um, we were doing 30-day retreats earlier when we were testing uh, the program. And, you know, we... We found that everyone who was obese came and lost uh, at least a, between 8 and 27 pounds in 30 days. And the average was about 18 pounds. So, you know, the weight just, the weight just fell off extremely rapidly. And, you know, so you can see very significant health improvements in a couple of weeks. And... Uh, uh, and then, you know, we try and follow up with people after they're back home and, and uh, see how they're doing and if the health improvements have continued. And so, you know, our, our goal is much more to really, uh, you know, bring about very significant health improvements in a short time by really optimizing everything and showing people how they can optimize everything and how they can live it when they're back home. Um, and then... Uh, you know, helping them successfully do it back at home and continue to get further health improvements. And so, um, you know, I would say it is extremely satisfying. It's really, you know, to help people improve their health and also to show them how much fun it is. You know, like you don't need to exercise that hard. You don't need to exercise like on The Biggest Loser. You just need, you know, 30 minutes a day of moderate exercise which is which is fun and you don't need uh you can eat very delicious food so phd is very similar to gourmet uh uh cuisine in its design and it's very delicious um you know so people can live very comfortable lifestyles and yet have tremendous uh health improvements yeah, so, Paul, I don't think I asked you before. What's your favorite Lazy Man meal? Um, well, I eat leftovers all the time. So I just <laughs> go to the refrigerator, uh, pull out one of our starches. You know, Usually we have rice or potatoes that were pre-cooked in the refrigerator and just throw them into a bowl 
and then I'll throw some egg yolks in, I'll throw some leftover meat, some leftover vegetables. Uh, I, I may put you know, a little bit of coconut milk and a little bit of vinegar and just heat it up in the microwave, you know, mix it, and that's my, uh, that's my lazy man's meal. Yeah, Paul, I think a couple people um, emailed me the first time or I can't I can't even remember maybe this is your second or third time I can't keep track on the podcast they were saying oh my god Paul microwaves his food so (laughs) do you want to talk about that a little bit and uh because you know I've seen some research on killing all the phytonutrients or a a large percentage of them but do you want to speak on that oh that's yeah that's uh that's nonsense I actually blogged about that it's uh you know microwaving is one of the healthiest and safest methods of cooking no way and yes it is as long as you don't dry the food out and uh, um and uh you know the phytonutrients uh they supply a lot of the color in a lot of plant foods so if you don't notice your plant foods changing color then uh you're, you haven't been destroying the uh phytonutrients wow that's a that's a uh a potential truth bomb right there. I think people are going to freak out over that one. But I think that's pretty good, though. I mean, I've always been skeptical. I I personally try to avoid microwave at all costs just because I like to pan fry and, and, you know, just throw the bowl into the, the pan and throw some butter and melt it in back that way. But I've always thought that, um, that basically you're just kind of, uh, I don't know, I guess, hitting things on the cellular level and kind of destroying like the actual cellular makeup of food but you're you're thinking that's definitely you're, that's definitely not true all cooking does that evan i mean any yeah but i'm saying of, a, yeah i'm saying a microwave over like a, a you know a pan though like stir frying on low or something like that but stir frying on low still would i mean i don't use the microwave all the time you know like you know i go back and forth i use it on occasion i try not to but i mean you know it, it works by vibrating water molecules together for heat um so you know paul could be correct i'm still split between the two whether it's okay and whether it's not okay but i will say that you know people choose to use a microwave you know because of the electromagnetic aspects of it and it is a faraday cage but some do leak high amounts of rf that's why pacemakers aren't supposed to be near microwaves when they're operation my best advice is if you're going to use a microwave try to stand stand at least a little bit away from it yeah. yeah, that that's a fair statement. So just because it's uh, just because it doesn't uh, create toxins out of your food, it uh, you know the microwaving may not be good for you if you're exposed to microwaves. So, well, Paul, I tell you, my fiance, if I tell her what you just told me, she's going to be so happy because I joke on her all the time for taking her uh, you know her food to work and and nuking it. And I say, babe, you know you're gonna just take the phytonutrients out. So maybe I've been a, uh, I've been a propaganda machine to her. So maybe I'll have to go apologize now. <laughs> thanks, thanks for that, Paul. Yeah, why don't you cook her a nice microwave meal? <laughs> I, I think I won't. I won't do the box method, but uh, but maybe I'll maybe I'll heat up some some uh, some leftovers sometime for her. That's, that's all right. That, yeah, that's that, fair. That should make it up to her. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, it's it's really fun talking to you guys, and I'm sure we could uh, continue uh, talking for another hour or two, but uh, we might as well wrap it up here. So, Paul, tell people um, where they can keep up with you and uh, any future projects or any future things going on with you, and then, John, the same for your book. 
All right. Well, people can uh, can visit my website at perfecthealthdiet.com. And uh, if if you haven't read our book, that's a that's the best diet book to read. And uh, um, also, we're going to be coming out with a cookbook. We're going to be coming out with a, a series of video lecture courses. Uh, we have a retreat, so if you want to uh, learn how to live uh, on ancestral diet and lifestyle while taking a luxury vacation, then uh, uh, check us out. And uh, um, also, I'm involved with the Ancestral Health Society. I'm uh, editor of a journal that the society sponsors, the Journal of Evolution and Health. And we're really hoping to get uh, ancestral approaches into the mainstream uh, as, a, as a healing methodology and demonstrate that you can really get good health improvements if you fix your diet and your lifestyle. Uh, so those are my main activities. Cool. Go ahead, Paul. Uh, I mean, I mean uh, John, sorry. It's all right, Evan. Um, yeah, I, first of all, highly recommend uh, most people, uh, actually everybody, uh, read uh, Paul's book, uh, Perfect Health Diet. I've read it myself uh, multiple times and, you know, both highly recommend that and his blog posts as well. Paul is very intelligent and has actually probably, when I suggest one of the best diets out there um, for most people. Um, but myself, uh, my book, uh, Fix Your Gut, um, has actually finally been released. It got released uh, this past week. Um, and um, it's pretty much a list of different protocols that one can use to um, overcome, you know, plenty of digestive disorders that are rampant in today's society, like gastrointestinal reflux disease and silent reflux and Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis and um, hemorrhoids, all in its magical uh, 300 pages. And they can also get that from visiting uh, my website, uh, fixyourgut.com uh, as well. Um, Evan, um, but you know everything seems to be going good on my end too as well, and so yeah, congratulations on your book, John. Thank you, Paul, very much. Yeah, well, uh, I actually have a really cool version of Paul's book because uh, it was hand delivered by Paul himself at uh, what was it, Elevation Burger? Is that I think that's where we met up here, Paul, and we had that little uh, that yeah little, that, that little right. video thing going going on, and I had to leave, and then the lady there was doing a drawing for a copy of your book and then i happened to win right as i was running out of the door so that was, so that was pretty neat yeah that was judith ruder's paleo cafe so uh who knows you might be on television sometime i hope so yeah i have my uh my green shirt on my i'm not just paleo shirt on too so that'd be cool put that thing on tv somewhere Awesome. Well, thank you guys. And uh, it's really good talking with both of you. And I'm sure we'll be in touch really soon. So thanks, Paul, for taking the time to uh, hang out with me and John and uh, drop some knowledge tonight. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you, Evan. Yes. Thank you guys very much for everything. All right. Thanks for tuning into that episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Now, next week, one of my favorite bands is coming on to the show, the singer from one of my favorite bands. So. That should be really good. We're going to talk about mindset and what it takes to continue to push forward even when you feel like giving up or when you have given up. So I think that would be a pretty fun episode. So I hope to see you back at notjustpaleo.com and come sign up for the newsletter if you haven't already. The Facebook page, all that stuff's there at the website. So I'll see you there and 
if you have a couple minutes, head to iTunes, not just paleo.com slash iTunes. Click the ratings and reviews tab, add some stars, and write something nice for me. I'd be happy to see what you think of the show and talk to you soon. All right, take care. Bye. He acts like it's all good, yeah, like everything's cool Kiss her girl and I never please her She doesn't have a clue that he's terrible clues Why I'm in a tire, gotta watch out, girl Don't wanna see her cry her eyes out, girl Cause I've been watching, you've been hurting Let me be the one that loves you better Yeah, so many guys I'm trying to impress you But they can love you, girl, like I do So if you want me, you got me, girl, as long as this is love